want Gene to make fun of me like he usually does. Well, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer together before we get into uh, part two in our study this morning. So um, I invite you to uh, um, let's kneel together if we can and, and let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for the Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, uh, the greatest gift that you could ever give to us. And I hope that each and every moment we we come to realize more and more how great that gift is. We thank you for this Sabbath day and for the many wonderful blessings we've had in the past week, for your protective care, for even the trials we go through. Uh, Father, we pray that you forgive us uh, where we have fallen uh, during these these tests, and we pray that uh, you will give us of the grace that we so much need to overcome, and uh, that we may be uh, a member of your kingdom. Be like Jesus. That's our goal. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for uh, the angels you send to watch over us and to help us in our walk. We ask humbly for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon your people, upon us here this morning, who've gathered together to worship you and to sing praises to your name and to to fellowship with like believers and lift each other up. We know the time's coming where it's going to be very difficult for your people. We pray that we may be strengthened in this time to endure that time. Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning as, as I speak about the reward of the redeemed and, and the, the spoils of victory, in essence, of this conflict and being with Jesus forever. I pray that it will encourage hearts and uh, lift up your people and strengthen them. Thank you so much for Jesus and all he has done and is doing for his people in heaven right now and for answering this prayer because we do pray it in his blessed name. Amen. When I originally started the series, This Is My Body, this is what I call it, This Is My Body, uh, concerning who and, and what is the church, I had notes laid out. Well, this is how I normally do it. I'll, I'll lay notes out uh, that's been impressed upon me. And uh, I looked at these notes, and I estimated that it last maybe about six months at the most. And, and that's what I had thought in August of 2012. <laughs> and so, however, when you get... Into the Word of God, the Spirit leads you to where He wants you to go. Amen. And so we got into the different topics of uh, of the series, uh, and as we did that, we became more involved, you know, and that prompted more and more questions and prompted more and more study, and here you go, you know. So 64 sermons, I counted them. 64 sermons later, we come to the final message in this series. And let me tell you, it's a message of good news. Um, uh, frankly, most all of it's good news, isn't it? But uh, this is especially good news. Uh, but before we get to the good news, like I said last week, if somebody comes to you and says, I got good news and bad news, what would you like to hear first? Uh, me, I always like to hear the bad news first, because I like to end it on an up note, and <laughs> be encouraged. And so last week we spent time on, the, on what we might consider the bad news. Uh, and so let's take a moment and refresh our memories as to what we learned there in part one. Uh, what is the definition of war? 
I began last week by getting us thinking about that. War is what? It's a state of conflict between organizations or coalitions of those organizations. Right? And why is there war? Well, you can't really just pinpoint it, can you? There are many differences, many motivations. Um, sometimes those who order war, those in power order a war, uh, are motivated differently than those who are fighting it. You, you see? And I, I remember this, I shared this with you, an interpretation of uh, this Jewish commentary on the fight between Cain and Abel. You remember that? Cain and Abel there in Genesis 4. They said in this commentary that there are three universal reasons for wars. This is the conclusion that they came up with. First was economics. People war over economics. Somebody has riches. I'm going to go get those riches. Somebody is uh, got uh, um, um, an advantage over me economically. I want to be on the same slate, so I'm going to go to war with this person. The, the second one was power. We've seen that through history, haven't we? You get into the prophecies of Daniel, you see that. Here were men who wanted to rule the world. See, so power. And the third was religion. And uh, we, we see that today. In fact, um, the, the final conflict in this battle between good and evil is going to be about religion, isn't it? And so ultimately, a conflict or war is waged to gain something over another, if you, if you can kind of boil it down to that. And uh, this can be referred to as the spoils of war, or the spoils of victory, and there's spoils of defeat as well. People don't think about it that way, but there are spoils of defeat. But spoils of victory, meaning any kind of profit that's extracted as the result of winning the war. You're, you're doing it for a particular reason and you want to win it and winning means you gain something, right? Now, is there such a thing as a good war? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I'm not sure any truly righteous person likes war but sometimes there's a need for one. Right? I want you to notice this statement. Uh, I've seen this a lot of times in my studies and such, and I probably shared it. And anybody who's read the book, The Great Controversy, has read this too. This is found in the book, The Great Controversy, page 45. I think it's chapter 2, if I'm not mistaken, of The Great Controversy. Um, but I want you to notice what she says here. She says, After a long and severe conflict... The faithful few decided to dissolve all union with the apostate church if she still refused to free herself from falsehood and idolatry. Now, as I read this, there are a lot of principles she's bringing out in here. And we covered some of this actually in, in this series about who and what the church is. When, do, when, when within a church, when there's strife or there's error or there's what, when is enough enough? Okay, people are always looking for that. Well, where's that? Say that in the Bible that this is when you you leave, quote God's church. God works with us on principles. You're not going to find oh in such and such a day that's when you leave the church, you know, because 
people would leave just because it said on that date you leave. It doesn't mean that they're leaving due to principle. See what I'm saying? So pay attention to this as I read this to you and look it up for yourself. But she says, um, after a long and severe conflict, the faithful few decided to dissolve all union with the apostate church if she still refused to free herself from falsehood and idolatry. They saw that separation was an absolute necessity if they would obey the word of God. There's a principle right there. You, if you're going to obey the word of God, and it caused a conflict. By obeying the word of God causes a conflict in your church. There's an issue with your church. See, this is what she's saying. So we have to separate, right? She says they dared not tolerate errors fatal to their own souls and set an example which would imperil the faith of their children and children's children. See? To secure peace and unity, they were ready to make any concession consistent with fidelity to God. We will make a concession if it's according to, to God's rules, God's laws, and us being faithful to Him. You starting to see the picture here? Something's going on here. See? There's division. And we're getting principles here. What, what do you do when there's division like this? Here are the principles. Notice this. Consistent with fidelity of God, but they felt that even peace would be too dearly purchased at the sacrifice of principle. And what's the final battle today about? What's the, the beast doing? He's calling all the children back to Rome, and he's saying, well, let's put a, aside those doctrines that, that uh, we don't agree on, and let's come together in unity on those things that we do agree on. That's against what we're reading here, isn't it? Isn't that against what the Bible lays out too? Sure. Now notice this. And this was my point. Is there? Remember what, what the question was. Is there such a, th- a thing as a good war? Right? Now notice this statement. This is how she ends this paragraph. She says, If unity could be secured only by the compromise of truth and righteousness... So, if the only way you can be unified together is if you compromise truth and righteousness, then let there be difference and even war. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? If you are in a church and they're warring against the commandments of God... You don't need a prophecy in the Bible or thus saith the Lord saying, now's the time you leave. Principles should dictate that now's the time you leave. <laughs> and she says, not only let there be difference, but even war, if it's to get you out of that. And so the question was, is there such a thing as a good war? And I'll remind you again what it says in Revelation 12. Being with verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Was that a good war? Or, well, instead of saying good, was war necessary? Sometimes it is, isn't it? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought 
and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. So there was war in heaven, wasn't there? And it's been brought down here to this earth. And so, we're engaged in this great controversy. And to the victor go the spoils. In fact, there are spoils for defeat too. But I want to tell you there will be a reward for God's church. And, and the motivation isn't... I, I, don't want to, I don't want to be black and white about it and say the motivation isn't for reward. It depends on what the reward is. In my, in my mind, the Bible says the reward is to be with Jesus. So, um, yeah, that's a motivation. I want to be with Jesus. You know? But I conduct this war according to, to His commands. See, not my own commands. I don't go out and get an AK-47 you know, and you know, that's not His commands to do that. Is it? No, He has, he has rules of engagement in this conflict. And He's our supreme commander, isn't He? If you take His name, He is. And so, there is a reward. That's to be with Jesus. And then there are all kinds of spoils that come with that. And it's not necessarily bad to seek those rewards because those are godly rewards. Right? But there will be a reward for God's church. And the reward, as we looked at, the reward for the children of Israel. After 40 years of what I call character perfecting in the wilderness uh, was to cross the Jordan into the promised land. This was a type of what? The final reward, wasn't it? Uh, For all those who love and choose Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're going to enter the promised land of a a new heaven and new earth. And the reward for the children of Israel who chose not to accept the Savior by faith, remember looking forward, was what? They died in that wilderness. And they did not enter the promised land. So there are spoils of war for both sides in this conflict. And each person has a choice to which they will receive. And we would be wise to make careful consideration, wouldn't we? To which one will be ours. (laughs) And these two rewards are actually two of the most... I don't know, I, I get in the habit of saying that a lot. The whole Bible is important. You know, but I get in the habit of saying it's the most important subject we need to understand. Well, the Bible is the most important subject we need to understand. But I have to say, if we don't understand it rightly, inevitably you'll end up with the wrong reward. And so, what is the reward for the wicked? We read this before. Job 21, verses 29 to 30. Have you not asked them that go by the way? And do ye not know their tokens, that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. So there's going to be a great day of what we'd call lamentation, doom and wrath for the wicked. And we learned that it begins with the pouring out of the seven last plagues. Last time we were together. Uh, those who have persisted in following their their own course of disobedience to God's word and his law, they begin to experience the spoils that they've chosen for themselves. And here's the deception. Up until that point, they believe they're doing the will of God. And they believe that that remnant is being disobedient to God. Thus we are 
just in putting them to death. See? When does the time of doom begin? Well, Revelation 16 tells us about that. The first went out, poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men, which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And so who is it that receives these seven last plagues? It's those who have the mark of the beast, isn't it? And those who have been obedient to all of God's law have the seal of the, the living God. They're preserved during that time. And so the plagues are the reward for the wicked, but that's only part of the reward. It doesn't end with the plagues and their destruction at the second coming of Jesus. It doesn't end there. We learn that they would also partake of what is referred to as the supper of the great God. Um, not the marriage uh, supper with the Lamb, but the supper of the great God. You read about that in Revelation 19 where they, they will be eaten by the fowls of heaven. I think of that. I'm, does that sound like a reward that you'd be interested in having? No. Well, what about the spoils for those who are faithful to God? We heard the bad news for some. What about the good news? The spoils of war for the faithful. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. I'll tell you what. Revelation spends a lot of time on the, the reward of those who choose to follow Jesus all the way. It actually does. In Revelation 21, we begin with verse 1. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And this is John. He's on the Isle of Patmos. And this is what he's seeing in vision. He sees a new heaven and what? A new earth. Completely new. It's not going to be like we see here before us today, is it? And in fact, because this is our only experience, and to my knowledge, none of us have been taken off in vision to see the new earth and new heavens. We, this is all we know. This reality right now, isn't it? So we can't really imagine. But here's John, he's saying, I saw a new heaven. So there, there was something in that vision that wasn't like what he, his reality at that time saw. He recognized it as a new heaven. And he recognized it as a new earth. And he says, For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. That's something that would jump out. There's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You ladies who are married, you remember your wedding day how you wanted everything to be perfect and you wanted to look perfect. And here, God is showing John that here is his people. We'll get to that more in a few minutes. They're prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, this new Jerusalem. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Let that sink in. The creator of all things is going to live with man. That's an incredible thought. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Who's going to do it? 
Who better to wipe the tears away from your eyes? God Himself is going to do it. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Who's the true and faithful witness? It's Jesus, isn't it? He's saying, Write these down, you can believe me, because I'm true and faithful. So in John's panoramic view of the history of the world, from his time until the close of all things, he's carried away into this consummation of the what the hopes and dreams of the faithful of all ages. He gets to see the very end and the new. <laughs> he sees all the calamities, he sees all the catastrophes of this wicked world, he sees them wiped away, never more to rise again. He sees all things becoming new. What an incredible thought of having a new beginning. There are people in our world today that they've gone through such hard times, they wish that the slate could just be wiped clean and they could just start new. God gives us that opportunity. That's incredible. I'll give you a new beginning. But it only comes through Christ. He's the one who has the power. He has the key to a new beginning. And we seem to like new things, don't we? I mean, who doesn't, really, right? Because we live in a world where things just, they fall apart, they get aged, worn out. Not in the new world. It ages according to time, but not condition. (laughs) Right? But we like new things. To some, there could be nothing better than driving a new car. Maybe some people, um, new clothes. Some people really like clothes. They like to get new clothes all the time. Uh, That really makes their day. Others, they get enjoyment out of things like new tools. Me. I like that. I like new tools. Maybe kitchen upgrades. My wife or you women out there. That's their tools. <laughs> new, house. <laughs> new house. Yeah, see. Whatever it may be. Everyone loves new things, I think. But John sees the greatest new thing of all. That's an entirely new world. Not just a new house, car, clothes, but absolutely everything's new. Well, that's what it takes to get there, isn't it? A new heart. I mean, just think about that for a moment. We will breathe air that is untainted. The most pure air we've ever experienced. (laughs) The purest. How can you get more pure than pure, I guess, right? We'll drink fresh, clean, and pure water. Living water, Jesus calls it. We'll eat the best organic food. No pesticides, no GMOs, nothing like that. The great reward of the faithful is an entirely new, as Jesus referred to it as, inheritance. We will inherit it because of what He's done. 
in order to, friends, in order to endure the trials and difficulties that we encounter here, I believe that it is necessary to keep our mind focused on the final reward of the faithful. Paul talks about running a race. You don't run a race forever. There is a finish line, and there is a trophy at the finish line for those who come across first in the races here on earth, right? So let's focus upon that. I mean, Jesus did this. It was the very thing that enabled Him to endure the terrible anguish through which He passed through for our salvation, friends. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Very common scripture for us. Paul said, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. What joy that was set before Him? Have you ever thought about that? Where in the ministry of Jesus here on earth was any joy set before Him? You know what I'm saying, reality-wise? Where was where's that joy? Can you point it to it in any of the Gospels? This is Paul's point. He's saying, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So this joy that was set before him was so incredible that he endured the cross for it. That he despised the shame, Paul says, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was in the midnight darkness of the cross, he focused on the joy that was to come. That's what Paul's saying. What was that joy for Jesus that was to come? Was it that he's going to come back to life? What was it? Why did Jesus do what he did? He did it for us. He thought of the millions of souls who'd be saved as a result of his sacrifice. That was the joy that was set up. He was willing, friends, to perish for all eternity so that we may be saved for all eternity. That was his joy. That brought joy to his heart. Let me share this with you. It's from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8. I'm going to have to move along here. I just love talking about good things. (laughs) Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 209. So that would be 4, no, excuse me, 8T209. An abbreviation for you. Behold the Son of God in the wilderness of temptation, in the time of greatest weakness, assailed by the fiercest temptation. I'm going to get into, I think, a series about temptation here probably pretty soon. It's been a long time since we even talked about it, really. And and I see it needs to be dealt with again. People have a misunderstanding of what temptation is. But here he is, she's saying, he's in the wilderness of temptation. It's the time of his greatest weakness, and he's battling the fiercest temptation. See him during the years of his ministry, attacked on every side by the forces of evil. See him in his agony on the cross. So, my question, remember, to begin with was, where was that joy? Look in the Gospels and tell me, where was the joy that was set before him? She's saying, here he was, he's in the wilderness battling temptation. He was 
uh, in his years of ministry, attacked on every side by the forces of evil. Here he is agonizing on the cross. Tell me, where was the joy? <laughs> okay? And then she says, all this he suffered for us. Christ's earthly life, so full of toil and sacrifice, was cheered by the thought that he would not have all his travail for naught. What's she saying by that? In other words, it wouldn't be in vain. He's not doing it for nothing, in essence, right? Even if it was just one person that was worth all heaven. Think about that. Even if it was for just one person, all heaven was given to save that one person. Jesus would have died for eternity for that one person. So what's the value of one person in God's eyes? The life of his son. You are of much value. Didn't Jesus say that? You do not recognize your value to God. She goes on and she says, By giving his life for the life of men, he would win the world back to its loyalty. Although the baptism of blood must first be received. Remember, he... He sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane because of the weight of sin. That had, he had to go through that first. This is what she's saying. First be received, although the sins of the world were to weigh upon his innocent soul, yet for the joy that was set before him, there's that again, he chose to endure the cross and despise the shame. So what was he doing? He was having the thoughts. This is what encouraged him. The thoughts of victory in the future. What he would win by going through what he did right now. So he was braced to endure the greatest of agonies. Even eternal death, friends. And it's the same in our trials. This is what he wants. He's, he's trying to perfect a generation of people to have his character. And so if we're going to endure the, the crosses that we're called to bear, our minds must be focused on that blessed reward of the faithful. Being with Jesus, I, I said, for eternity. The rest is really gravy, isn't it? That's the way I kind of look at it. I'm not so concerned with the rest of it. I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that, it's going to be fantastic. But I'd like to sit down with my Savior. <laughs> We've got all eternity to do that. It's not like you got to make an appointment. You know, like you got the angel secretary. Name, okay. You know, you go out and eat sometimes and you go to the restaurant and they take your name on a, on a list. you got to wait for a table to open up. It ain't going to be that way in heaven, let me tell you. And if it is, we won't mind waiting. <laughs> like I said, the rest is gravy. So when Paul was... What's that? I hope I like gravy. Yeah, funny. When Paul, well, I like good gravy. There's bad gravy and there's good gravy. <laughs> My wife makes a good cashew gravy. Man, I love that stuff. When Paul was uh, pressed with temptations and trials, his thoughts went upward. It turned upward. It enabled him to fight the battles of the Lord. Look at Romans 8, verse 18. 
And this is why Paul said this. He said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, his mind anticipated that glory to come. And he realized that the sufferings and trials of this life were nothing in comparison to that. And if we're going to experience that glorious reward, we must do like Jesus did. And we've got to do like what Paul did. During trying times, friends, turn your thoughts from what is before you to that spectacular age to come when you're with Christ. Now, in my experience, there are some individuals who simply don't have a desire to take part in the spoils of victory for the saved. And there are many different reasons for that. You know, I've talked with individuals who said that it sounds like a good idea. Oh, that sounds really good. Uh, but I'm going to enjoy myself here too. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, yeah that it's they're being led by that Pied Piper down the road of deception. That you can have it all here and there. Right? The devil has them convinced that this is the best you can get sometimes too. Oh, this is the best you can get. Others don't care anything uh, about re- you know, any religious thing at all. They have no desire to go to such a boring place as heaven. I've run into that before. I mean, they don't see any enjoyment in sitting on clouds playing harps for all eternity. Well, who would? <laughs> if that's what it was. You know, I mean, that's a logical step. Who wants to sit on a cloud and play a harp for all eternity? Yeah, but is that really what uh, God has in store for His people? No, it's not. I don't think anybody would look forward to a place like that. But it doesn't correctly portray the reward of the faithful friends. Let's go to Isaiah. Let's look at some of these things. Isaiah chapter 65. A few verses here, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Oh, well, thanks for that test. That was for emphasis. <laughs> that was for emphasis right there. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 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 earth. Where have we heard that before? John said that in Revelation, didn't he? And it says, And the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. So we're, we're not going to remember the things that happen here. Heaven is that spectacular, friends, that what's happened here, we don't care. We don't care to come back. Look at verse 21. And they shall build houses. This is important too. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build in another inhabit. You're not going to have, okay, I build houses for a living. You're going to have time to build your own house. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. We're going to enjoy our work. (laughs) We've had these discussions with our kids, haven't we? 
Well, you know, you got if if you want things, you got to work for them. I don't like a, this job because I just I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. Well, until you find one you like, it's a necessity, <laughs> right? Can't tell you the number of times he's told the kids when they're growing up living here, you don't work. You, you don't, don't eat. eat. <laughs> yeah, right. So they had to do chores. <laughs> right, and it made it made them even though they sometimes they hated it. It made them uh, good people. Um, but but you know here in Isaiah it says. Mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. You know, it's going to be a different kind of work. I don't think we... I have a hard time imagining that because, you know, because of the fall, God cursed the ground, remember? And you eat bread from the sweat of thy brow, he said. But this work isn't going to cause sweat. (laughs) Right? There's no pain, there's no suffering. You're going to enjoy the work of your hands. That's right. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like that. I don't like snakes. I'm sorry. (laughs) What about spiders? Well, whatever. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. And so, friends... The Bible gives a description, you know, about this new heaven and new earth. It's far from a land of boredom and activity, right? And I don't think, you know, we can imagine how great it's going to be. It's it's difficult for us to. It's not going to be a place, though, like like the devil's painted as some place of idle indifference, you know. I don't think any inhabitant is going to say, you know, I'm bored. I don't think that's even possible. (laughs) The Lord has provided thousands of things to interest our mind and give delight to our hands here on this earth right now, as far as that goes. But how much better is it going to be when when He recreates it? It's not going to be an imaginary place of clouds. It's going to be a real place with real things. If you enjoy hiking, there's going to be a lot of unmapped territory, I'm sure, that you can go explore. Now, if you enjoy traveling, there are worlds out there for all eternity. You know, White says you could visit a planet a day and not exhaust the planets to explore for all eternity. You're never going to run out. (laughs) Music, you get to listen to the greatest choirs that have ever been created. Instruments that put out the most joyous noise. You know, if you enjoy history, think about all. And I like history. Think about all the eyewitnesses uh, of of salvation that you can talk to throughout eternity. Look at the records that you could go consult. At least during a thousand years, you can look up any record you want. If you enjoy socializing, there's going to be millions of Christians you've never met before that you can socialize with. It's amazing. Micah 4 and verse 8 says, And thou, O tower of the flock, the the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. 
So see, he's saying the Lord has promised the restoration of the first dominion to the faithful. What is the first dominion? Yeah, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and the fowl. And so the first dominion, like you said, is the beautiful earth made new. That God prepared for mankind like it was in the very beginning. And it's this dominion that God's going to restore. It's not a make-believe world. But a restoration of what man lost in the beginning. Only, I think, with some added benefits. I mean, the Garden of Eden was not an imaginary place. You know, with imaginary beauty. And some people say, oh yeah, the Bible's just an allegory. Just imagination. It's not. It was real. It's a real physical place. Here's from Signs of the Times, November 4th, 1908. That'd be ST 11-4-1908. She says, at his creation, Adam was placed in dominion over the earth. But by yielding to temptation... He was brought under the power of Satan and the dominion which he held passed to his conqueror. But Christ, by his sacrifice paying the penalty of sin, would not only redeem man, so it's not just about our redemption, she says, but recover the dominion which he had forfeited. All that was lost by the first Adam will be restored by the second. God created the earth to be the abode of holy, happy beings. That purpose will be fulfilled. When renewed by the power of God and freed from sin and sorrow, it shall become the eternal abode of the redeemed. You friends, as you look at the natural things around the world today, it all came from the hand of God. The trees and the flowers, they come through a long line from the very plants that God created. The rocks that you find in the rivers, the oceans, are the very rocks that God created. <laughs> this earth, its core, God created it. The waters that pass through the streams and go through the rivers and the mighty oceans, those very waters the Lord created. And the animals, He created. Adam and Eve, He created. If you trace back, you know, you do that Ancestry.com, you would trace your family line clear back to Adam and Eve. <laughs> By looking around at the beautiful world that God has so graciously given to us, we can see that He's a lover of things that are real, not imaginary. In the beginning, God created a real, physical, tangible world, and when He restores that first dominion, it's going to be real, physical, tangible world. And there's more. Part of the spoils of war for the righteous is that all these afflictions that we go through that are so common are going to be passed away. We'll go back to Isaiah again. Isaiah 35. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. 
Verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Skip down to verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. These are encouragements, aren't they? So all the physical ailments and pain shall be passed away. All's going to be joy. All's going to be gladness. Tears will be turned into rejoicing. Sorrow will give way to joy. The pain and suffering of this world will be forever passed away. Isaiah 33 verse 24. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. So, what's that tell us? Are there going to be any hospitals and funeral homes and clinics? No. Never one time will you hear someone say they're not feeling well. You're not going to hear them say, you know, i got a headache. Or, oh, you know, like last night with me, my, my knees bothering me. You're not going to hear that. All sickness and physical afflictions and illnesses are going to be gone forever. You're going to be healthy, perfectly healthy. I think the beauty of the final reward as well, those spoils of the righteous, is hard to put into words. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 21. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. This is verse 10. And showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Some people say, well, you're never going to remember anything of the past. I don't think so. I think you are. You just don't want to remember it. Heaven's glorious. But those, what, twelve gates have names, and they have the names of who? The twelve tribes of the children of Israel. See, that testament of what Christ has done for humanity is going to be set forever. It's not something that's going to be erased. I remember somebody made a statement one time and it just really hit me. It was like, what is the only thing man-made that will be in heaven? There's one thing man-made that will be in heaven and will be for all eternity. No. That's a good guess, though. I'll have to rethink that now. That's a that's a real good but but the point was the scars in the hands of Jesus. His hands, feet, and his side and his <laughs> I'll have to check into that. But that's pretty good. We're the only things man made that will be in heaven. Look at verse eighteen in Revelation twenty one. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold. Now what's being described here again? The new Jerusalem, right? And the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. Polished so good it looked like glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third. This is so interesting to me. Why do you think 
John's given this envision, and given the time that he writes these specifics down. Why would you think that? Well, first of all, God deals with specifics, doesn't he? Very often. Second of all, it's for us, isn't it? To know that it's real. So he goes through this description all the way you get to, you know, verse 21. Talks about the the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. Again, it's polished so well it's perfect. There are no, uh, what would you call it? No deformities in anything. It's pure. There are no impurities in the gold. You know, that's how they do gold today. It's 10 carat or 12 carat or 24 carat. That means it has impurities in it. So there's ranks as to how pure the gold is. This gold's so pure, it's like glass. (laughs) The Lord creates beautiful things, doesn't He? God created a beautiful world for His people. And when He redeems His faithful from the earth, He's not... You think he's going to spare any effort to recreate the most beautiful habitation ever known to man? I sure don't. And so, the earth is made new and the city is filled with incredible beauty. I think the greatest fact of all about the reward of the faithful is that they shall see Jesus for themselves. John 17, verse 3. This is life eternal that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Even in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. Essentially that means they're going to have His character. Paul said in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, He said, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So through our pilgrimage here on this earth, we've seen God dimly and in part, but then we're going to see Him face to face. I think that's beautiful. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, how incredible it's going to be. He says, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. <laughs> we just, I don't know that we can come. We've been so beat down, so disappointed in our lives that sometimes it's just hard to believe, isn't it? That that it could, you know, people... Uh, in our time here, they, their greatest dreams are like winning the lottery. Being so wealthy that you could have everything you want. Heaven goes beyond that. <laughs> Not only do you get things, let's see how I could say this, you get such an incredible inheritance, it's not superficial, it's all fulfilling. Because, you know, in this world, the wealthiest of people are probably some of the saddest. Right? It ain't going to be that way in heaven. Yeah. Is there anything in this world that can compare with the reward of the saints? 
do the things of this world hold any attraction when we see the reward that is coming? That's the point. And with each of the two rewards, the spoils that I've called them, there is a supper to usher the reward in. There's a supper for the faithful, there's a supper for the unfaithful as well. But the difference between these two suppers is as far as the east is from the west. We learned about the supper of the unfaithful, and that's going to be a terrible scene, isn't it? What about the supper of the faithful? This supper is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We go to Revelation 19, verse 6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's blessed? Those that are called to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So the faithful are going to be a part of the greatest wedding feast of all time. I think, actually, people were honest, they actually enjoy godly weddings. And people who get married, most people, I'd say it's one of the happiest days of their lives. But this marriage feast is going to far exceed even the most elaborate wedding that you'll find here on this earth. This wedding feast will be the great celebration of the heavenly marriage between who? Jesus and His church. It will be the grand opening of eternity for the redeemed. Starting a new life together. Right? In traditional weddings, the bride and groom are married and then the reception follows. Right? And so the marriage supper of the Lamb immediately follows the marriage of the Lamb. The bridegroom in this great wedding is who? It's Jesus, isn't it? It says in John 3, verse 28, it says, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Right? But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. By John referring to himself here as the friend of the bridegroom, he's naming Jesus as the groom. The, in those times, the, the friend of the bridegroom was the middleman. He's the one who made arrangements between the family of the groom and that of the bride. And John had fulfilled that appointed role. He called Israel to accept her spiritual Lord and Master, didn't he? If Christ is the bridegroom, then whom is he married to? Now, of course, that was talking about John the Baptist. You understand that. Okay. He, he prepared the way for Jesus, didn't he? Well, who's Jesus married to? In 2 Corinthians, Paul's addressing the church at Corinth when he calls it the bride to, to Christ. Chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, 
that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That was 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. Let me share this with you from the Adventist home, page 26. She says, Christ honored the marriage relation by making it also a symbol of the union between Him and His redeemed ones. He Himself is the bridegroom, the bride is the church, of which, as His chosen one, He says, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in Thee. (laughs) This great marriage that's soon to take place is the marriage between Christ and His church. And surely there couldn't be any greater marriage no greater celebration and rejoicing that's going to take place at that marriage supper. I can't imagine anything greater than that. Now someone may ask, why has this marriage not already taken place? Why hasn't he already come? Well, I'll point you to Revelation 19 and verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and here's the, here's the answer, and His wife hath made herself ready. So we're not waiting on Jesus, are we? Jesus is waiting on us. <laughs> He's waiting on His people to get ready. And as soon as the church is ready for the greatest marriage of all time, He'll come. That's why it takes us women so much longer to get ready. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening to you. <laughs> what? Is he? He's waiting. You guys are always waiting. Uh, the guys are always waiting for the wives to get ready. Yeah, oh, that's okay. right. Stands waiting. Makes sense. <laughs> Matthew 22, verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So when you, in those days when you showed up to a wedding, there was a, a special wedding garment that was to be worn, and it was provided by the king himself. And you could almost liken it today that the the groom chooses his attire and he provides the attire that same type of adornment, that same type of clothing for his groomsmen. And then you see the the bride does the same, picks out what the the bridesmaids can think of it, bridesmaids will wear. You know, you can see how the custom has kind of changed quite a bit since that time. But here it was provided by the king. So a wedding hall filled with properly attired guests would be an honor to the king. It'd be an honor for that occasion, you see. But a person inappropriately dressed would bring dishonor to the host, and it introduced, uh, introduces a discordant note into the celebration, into those festivities. So to be a guest at this wedding, you must be wearing the garment that the king has supplied. Right? What does this wedding garment represent? I'm going to share this with you. Christ's Objects Lessons, 
page 310. That would be COL 310. By the wedding garment in the parable is represented the pure, spotless character which Christ's true followers will possess. To the church it is given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The fine linen, says the scripture, is the righteousness of saints. We read that in Revelation 19.8. It is the righteousness of Christ, His own unblemished character, that through faith is imparted to all who receive Him as their personal Savior. And how do you receive it again? She said, through faith it is imparted. In other words, commitment and trust to Him. He gives it to you. And so Christ's bride must be clad in that wedding garment of character that He's provided. And we all know we've experienced this. Many claim to be Christians, don't they? Many claim to be the bride of Christ, but we read there, few are chosen. Why are few chosen? Because few of them consent to wear the wedding garment. And what did the king say to do to the one who was caught without it? Cast him out. Bind him. Cast him out. You know, it's because they cling to their own ideas, their own ways. They don't let the Lord change them into His likeness. But that garment is to be unspotted, isn't it? It means there's not going to be any sin, no selfishness. Revelation tells us that there is no guile found in their mouth. That's any kind of falsehood. That's remarkable. Only God can do that to us, friends. <laughs> I'm telling you. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Paul said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. Never does a bride come to the wedding in a gown that's wrinkled or smudged or torn. Could you imagine doing that? And the bride of Christ isn't going to come to her wedding like that either. So she must have allowed Christ to cleanse and sanctify her from all sin so that she may be pure and undefiled on that great wedding day. Go back to COL, Christ's Objects Lessons, page 69. Christ is waiting with longing desire. I've shared this with you many times. He's waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of Himself in His church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to claim them as His own. So see, He's waiting for His bride to get ready. Jesus said in Matthew 8 and verse 11, He said, And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that interesting? We're going to sit down with who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> We're going to sit down, friends, with prophets and apostles, holy men and women of all ages. We're going to sit down with them and eat and drink at the table with Jesus. It brings tears to my eyes. Shortly before Jesus was taken from His disciples, He made a promise. 
It's in Matthew 26, verse 29. We know this. He said, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's been waiting over 2,000 years to drink of the pure juice of the vine with his children at that great marriage supper. It's incredible. So, beloved, we have a decision to make, don't we? You and I. Every person alive today has a choice to make. There are two choices. There are two spoils. One's a spoil of victory. One's a spoil of defeat. And your decision will determine which supper you're a part of. Whether you eat with the saved of all ages or if you're eaten by the birds of heaven. It's a gruesome thought, I think. But it's better to think about it now before it's too late. Wouldn't you agree? Because the time's coming which it'll be too late. A time in which every decision will have been made for or against eternity. In Revelation 22, verse 11, we're very familiar with this. Michael stands up. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And very soon this decree will be made and it will be forever too late to change sides. You'll then be on one side or another and your destiny is going to be sealed. And it's sooner than you think. Sooner than I think. Besides the fact that any one of us could die at any moment, time is soon to end, friends. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he said, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now, you have an opportunity. You're living, you're breathing. You have a right mind. So you have a decision to make. Are you going to make it? Let me tell you. Not making a decision is what? Is making a decision. Jerome's got it right. And the default one isn't a good one. So which supper do you want to be in? Which reward do you prefer? You ask you some questions and you think about this, friends. Is there any part of God's holy law that you're ignoring? Don't delay. Delay is from the devil. You can go to Jesus. Now's the time to do it. He will forgive. He has said it over and over. Any who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Which mark will you receive? Because it will determine which spoils of war will be yours. Is there anything, think about this, is there anything in this world that holds you back? Is there anything that keeps you from making the leap of faith to keep all of God's law? Is it worth it in the end, in the long run? Is whatever the hindrance may be more important to you than eternal life? That's a thought. Are you with the multitudes still in the valley of decision? There are a lot of people there. It's a pretty crowded place. And Joel 3 and verse 14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
You must make a decision whether you want to or not, friends. All who don't make a decision, you know what's going to happen? They'll be counted with the unbelievers. Because that is the default decision. So which side are you going to be on? Take time to seriously think about it. Contemplate that. You know, I find it very interesting. Just think of this while you're thinking of that. Our every thought, our every action is recorded. It means that much to God. We too often don't seem to care about every thought or every action. Just certain ones. Isn't that true? Well, if it means so much to God, it should mean so much to us. Right? And remember, God's God enables you to do that which He's asked you to do. So if He wants you to have control over your thoughts, He enables you to have control over your thoughts. Don't ever forget that. You're not in it alone. When you're with Christ, you have all heaven on your side. And so, beloved, please consider all that we've covered in this series. Um, you can go to the church site and go, and, and there's links that you can go back over the series. You can l- listen to every single sermon. It's on SoundCloud. And uh, I've been able to upload, uh, I'll have this one today, uploaded today, by God's grace. So, you know, at least the most recent ones. I think this whole entire series is on the net for anybody to, to listen to. And it gets a lot of hits all over the world. It's amazing. That's something that I just can't contemplate. How people all over the world can can get there. But, but remember, make a right decision. There are how many churches? Two. You know, in our definition of war, it says it's a war between two factions, but there may be lots of organizations to those factions, and that's true. There are only two churches, but there may be many organizations within each church. See? There are only two sides. So choose to give yourself completely to the one who gave all for your salvation. Choose the Lord's side. You'll inherit all things God has in store for the faithful. It'll... Fill God's heart with joy. I'll end with this scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. Think of these words. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey His voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto Him, for He is thy life, and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. God wants to give you all things, friends. Don't stand in the way. Receive Jesus, receive life, receive all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for your holy Bible, for the encouragement that we often find in its words. 
We pray for the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and our minds, to keep us on the straight and narrow, to help us to have a right understanding, to overcome these things that beset us all too often. Lord, we need your strength and grace to to have captive our thoughts and our actions, that they may be in line with the character of Jesus. We thank you so much for Jesus, who for the joy of us being in the kingdom, he endured all these things. And we are so, so very grateful. We give you our hearts today. We pray that you will keep them into that great day when we can sit down and eat with thee in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you for this Sabbath day. Please continue to bless us. Bless those on our prayer lists. Be with our families and our children especially. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.